You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, we also had some news, Critty, this morning uh, for, I guess, Twitter, which is now owned personally by Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so no longer trains publicly, but Twitter's still a big new name. They pulled, um, they went over to the NBC Universal and got one of their senior executives, Linda Yaccarino, to be the CEO of Twitter. It's kind of some big news in the world of advertising and digital advertising. Uh, Mandeep Singh joins us. He's a tech analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. So Mandeep, I know Twitter's no longer public, but I mean, I guess if nothing else, you could say Elon Musk is serious about trying to, you know, try to rebuild Twitter as a digital advertising platform. Yeah, and it's uh, interesting to see him appoint an executive, you know, from a traditional media company. Uh, Obviously, she's seasoned, but uh, I would be interested to know if he had more than one candidate in mind in terms of, you know, bringing uh, someone for CEO role. And look, I I think that's the part that they need stability on. Uh, I mean, from what we have read so far, Twitter has been losing advertising dollars since the time it went private. So if somebody can steady the ship on that front, uh, clearly engagement has been stable, I, I think, for the most part. So it's advertising dollars that was a cause for concern. And uh Maybe it's a good thing. So, Mandy, if I, I know you follow Google. I know you follow Meta and, and, and all that digital advertising space. What's the feeling on Madison Avenue now and amongst advertisers? Like, do they even want to put their dollars on Twitter? Have they pulled their dollars off? Do we have any sense um, of kind of how they're viewing Twitter these days as an option? Yeah, so I think overall this earnings season, uh, the company's printed better than expected results, even though expectations were quite low. And my sense is even though Twitter is losing uh, market share, uh, things seem to be stabilizing and generative AI overall is a positive for all the digital ad companies. We, we saw Meta just announced AI Sandbox. I think every digital ad company is going to try to do something similar in terms of you know self-serve ads using generative AI to make ads more personalable. And and that is where that linear to digital shift is still gonna continue. So I I think platforms like Twitter and even the smaller ones will benefit from that trend. Obviously things are still 
kind of uh, quite slow in terms of the ad growth, but my sense is we probably are close to a bottom in terms of the ad pricing headwinds that we saw over the last few quarters. Well, of course, we're seeing that Twitter is a private company now, so we can't necessarily see a stock reaction there, but you can in Tesla. Bailey, walk us through the logic there. Yeah, right now the stock over the past few days up more than 3%, sharply outperforming the NASDAQ, which is flat. And the big focus right now for investors is that Elon can now refocus his attention on Tesla with a new CEO um, overseeing Twitter or X Corp, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and that would free him up. And that's been kind of the main thesis or one of the big question marks around Tesla's path forward was how distracted can Elon Musk be and continue to deliver results and to continue to deliver growth. And that seems to be why you're seeing investors already rewarding Tesla, just because now it does seem like he can recenter that attention. All right, Bailey Lipschultz, thank you so much for joining us. Bailey Lipschultz, he covers all the markets for Bloomberg News uh, and Mandeep Singh. He's a tech analyst, senior tech dude over at Bloomberg Intelligence. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Jane Foley uh, also doing the work. She's head of FX Strategy at Rabobank. So, Jane, let's just start there. I mean, you see some economic data there that is just really disappointing in the near term and then kind of inflationary looking out five to ten years. You know, from your perspective, uh, in the currency markets, what do, you, what do you make of that data? Well, I mean, that's a bit of a worry, isn't it? And, and certainly the, the inflation expectations number does lend itself to the higher for longer interest rate story. Now, clearly, uh, consumer sentiment is, is down. And, you know, that, that could be a reaction to the concerns about the, the debt ceiling. And maybe that would be something that would respond if these debt ceiling uh, issues were um, sorted out. But at the same time, you know, with, with inflation higher, you know, you've got to you've got to assume that the Fed will keep on pressing to get back down to its 2 percent target. And, and therefore, you know, at what cost to the economy are we going to see, you know, that recession in the latter half of this year and no let up in, in interest rates? And I think that's quite likely the scenario that, that we are going to see. Jane, what is the bear case here for the dollar? It feels like if you're talking about a recession, you buy the dollar. If you're talking about a U.S. debt default, you go to safety and buy the dollar. What is the bear case for the greenback? 
Well, to be honest, you know, for, for those reasons that we do think that the dollar will come back in the second half of the year, we think euro dollar, you know, could slip to, to 106 in the, in the second half of the year. And uh, as the market prices out, interest rate hikes and, and as uh, safe haven bids get stuck in, because let's face it, if the U.S. economy does hit recession at a time when we might have just stagnation for the eurozone and where the, the Chinese economy is or the Chinese recovery is, is disappointing, you know, many forecasters, who really wants to move into to high risk? And, and I certainly, certainly think in, in that environment that you would buy the dollar. So that is our forecast. But your question is, what would turn it? You know, what would make the dollar, um, uh, you know, sell off and, and, and go stronger? And, and I think in that scenario, we would have to have a, a scenario where the, the global economy is looking really good, where the market wants to buy and pile more into to high risk, because that is generally what happens. The, 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 the dollar has a pretty good inverted correlation with risky assets. And, and when um, the, the global economic outlook is, is being good and people pile into risk assets, the dollar does poorly. And I don't think that's what we're going to see in the second half of this year. So, but it does sound like ultimately when we're talking about even the, the bull case for the dollar, which, which you have um, beautifully laid out, the idea of interest rate differentials, the idea of a hawkish ECB or a hawkish BOE uh, kind of driving the euro and, and uh, pound strength, that doesn't seem to be what's driving the narrative for the dollar anymore. It's no longer about interest rates as much as it was, say, a year ago. Would you agree with that? Well, you know, I think we can actually look and, and, and see what is in the price. And the market has already got more ECB interest rate hikes priced in. It's already got more Bank of England interest rates priced in. And I think if we take the euro, for, for instance, um, over and above what is already priced in, can the market make an even better call for, for buying the euro? And, and I think at this stage, probably not. Because um, what we've had for the euro since the start of the year is is relief, better than expected news, because we had a mild winter here in Europe. Gas prices have come down. We didn't have the recession in, in Germany. We've seen a hawkish ECB. But now that that's all priced in, what are we facing? Well, we're facing probably stagnation in H2. And so is that a reason to buy the euro? Well, probably not. And the market's already long. And, and so I, I think... Um, interest rate differentials are still very much at play, but we've got to compare them to what's already in the price. And Jane, I'm just looking at the pound sterling. Um, you know, it's up 17, 18% off of that low. What's going on there? Well, you know, it, it has had a good run, but actually in the last 24 hours or so, it's it's really beginning to fail. And again, you know, similar to the euro, there's a lot of better news in the price. If we look back in March, Sterling was the best-performing G10 currency in March, and that reflected a slew of better-than-expected data which were coming through there. So you could argue that although the Bank of England increased its forecast for GDP yesterday and also for inflation, well, the market sort of already knew that. It was already perhaps prepared for more interest rate hikes or another interest rate hike from the Bank of England before, uh, you know, before the peak. Um, and, and so from that point of view, because sterling failed or cable failed to hold its higher levels, and let's say also the dollar was on the front foot yesterday because it failed to go higher. Well, you know, the, the technicals began to sour and, and, and it went lower instead. And I think we are at the point now whereby it's we've had enough better news for the UK for the market to, to close its short positions. But have we got the sort of news that the market wants to build long sterling positions from this point? And I think probably not, because although the GDP numbers were revised up, they've been revised up to a stagnationary or even a stagflationary environment. And a better outlook for the UK 
economy is what we've got. But that doesn't mean to say it's good. Certainly not. Well, how you know, how it, what is it like in, in London these days, in England these days? What's just kind of the feeling for the average uh, Brit right now as it relates to the economy, the outlook? What can you what can you share with us? Well, you know, you know, the first thing I would share is that the the, the feeling in London is usually very different to other right. parts of the economy. <laughs> London and the southeast tends to be a lot more prosperous. But you know, I I do know that around the country as a whole. You know, over the last year or so, there has been a real steep rise in food banks and the amount of people using food banks. So the cost of living crisis on an individual basis has been extremely painful for an awful lot of people. That said, because the labor market is tight and because most people, you know, who, who want a job have got a job, what we have seen is aggregate demand has been stronger than expected. And that's what's led to this improved GDP outlook and, and actually improved levels for the, the government coffers even because there's been more taxes being paid. So we've had this better than expected outcome on an aggregate basis, but on an individual basis, there's an awful lot of people really feeling the pinch because of higher inflation and higher interest rates. Well, speaking of really feeling the pinch, um, there's a fun fact, I think, from the IMF spring meetings that I just can't let go of. The idea that it's going to take years for the British economy to climb their way out of this kind of recessionary period. What does that do to the currency? I mean, we're looking at 124 on the cable rate right now. How much upside, how much downside is there? Well, um, you know, but perhaps a, a better example of that is, you know, I, I can tell you that, that sterling has still not recovered its, to its levels against the euro that were there before the Brexit referendum in, in, in 2016. So from, from that point of view, I think that reflects perhaps also the weakness of business investment, for instance, in, in the UK, a lot of the political uncertainty that we've had in, in, in recent years. Um, and that is, has certainly over the last year or, or two or, and before that created this, this area of doubt this, this, this sentiment of, of doubt and uncertainty surrounding the, the, the UK economy and also sterling. Now, with respect to cable, um, obviously that's governed quite a lot about uh, the, the, what the dollar does. And I think in the second half of the year, cable is going to be more about the dollar perhaps than about sterling. But uh, even though sterling has recovered a lot against the dollar since, say, March, um, historically it's still below its median levels. Jane Foley, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your perspective. Uh, Jane Foley, head of FX Strategy at Rabobank. She is uh, based in London. Uh, always appreciate getting uh, that uh, view as well. So again, the currency markets looking at uh, the Bloomberg Dollar Index. It's up three-tenths of 1% today. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Paul, again, the emission data. I mean, it's just ugly any way you look at it. Uh, current conditions worse than people than we had thought Inflation going to be higher than we had thought. There's just not a good way to spin that. Robert Teeter joins us. He's head of investment policy and the strategy group at Silvercrest Asset Management. Critty, it's interesting to note that he joins us in studio. Yeah. Yeah, Bloomberg employees aren't even in the building. I was like, ordinarily, that would get a gold star from Paul. Yeah. On like a day like today, it's like three gold stars, three maybe gold a trophy. Star. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. So, Robert, let's just start with some of that eco data. That UMISH data came out. I don't know, man. It just doesn't look good anyway. A slice of what, what, what did you make of it? 
Yeah, so I think the two things I focused on the most were the sentiment side, which looks you know very negative. Most sentiment indicators have been very negative. It's quite an interesting disconnect between a relatively strong job market and just continued persistent negative sentiment. So I think that's an interesting disconnect that will resolve at some point one way or the other, I think more towards sentiment improving. Um, you look at the component of it related to inflation expectations ticking up. Um, that's not that much of a surprise to me. While it was better than, you know, higher, hotter, worse than expectations, um, it is something that we've been hearing for months and months now that inflation is going to be sticky and persistent. And so I'm not that surprised to see it show up in the survey data. Uh, at the number that it's at, it's a bit elevated, but not terrible in my opinion. Let's talk about the debt ceiling, shall oh, we? Oh, that's fun. Yeah, always. Um, it feels like there is a concern about just how bad it'll get. Talk to us about the layers of messiness here. Yeah, I think that's a great way to think of it. I, I do think, like most people, that uh, in the end, uh, cooler heads will prevail and we, we will get a solution. The question is, what's the path look like from here to there? And I think the path could get a bit messy. And I think that sets the stage for uh, you know how we have to think about the state of politics in the U.S. going forward being a risk factor in the economy. And so I, I do think we'll get resolution. I think that's a good thing, but it could get a little bit messy. Between but what are the what are the options here, though? Yeah. So I think one of the things is that whenever you saw the release from Secretary Yellen talking about the X date, you know, making it June 1st and trying to, to get everyone focused in on June 1st as a deadline, there was also some language in there that indicated the fact that, well, it could be several weeks after that. And so you could have this rolling crisis situation where we push and push and push into June 1, don't get a resolution and let it glide another couple of weeks and then hope that you know we get to those dates where more money comes in the door and the X date gets pushed out further. Um, I think that's a pretty tough situation for markets because you'll just be looking at a rolling series of crises over coming weeks. So I think if we don't get that resolution by June 1, uh, we could be in for some real choppiness after that. All right. So I don't know. What do you do here? I mean, it's there's a lot of what ifs out there. And most notably, I guess, I guess this, uh, you know, the stuff about the debt ceiling, but there's a lot of cross currents out there. How are you when you talk to Clients, what do you kind of how you kind of framing out the next six to twelve months? Yeah, so I sort of start with with the economy and where we are today, and I think we're running at about one and a half percent growth. So I look at the real time models, I look at mobility indicators, spending, and things like that. I think we're a little north of one percent. We have a pretty strong job market, and so that's consistent with that sort of stability as far as the economy is concerned. Um, when you look out in the near term, though, you know we're certainly going to have some continued drag from the from the credit crunch and from the things going on in the banking sector. So uh, there, we've modeled that out. We looked at the '80s and '90s SNL crisis, very different, uh, similar in terms of dollar amounts, but very dissimilar in terms of the 80s, 90s, you had hundreds of banks failing every year. And so yeah, we estimate something like 30% of, of uh, stress of, of the 80s today. And to us, that leads to about a 1% GDP decline. So that gets us pretty close to that flat line of you know flat growth for, for coming quarters. Oh my gosh, 30% of the pain in the 80s. That's not, that's, that's something. The 80s were pretty good to me. So I know, we always, talk about, yeah. we always talk about the 80s with me and Paul. I was not around in the 80s, <laughs> surprise, surprise. But I always refer to the 80s, uh, especially to talk about inflation and, you know, Reagan and defense and all that stuff, fun stuff. And he's like, you know what I was doing in the 80s, having a great time. And I was like, yeah, same. Um, let's talk about the trade here, though, because it is a pretty doomsday scenario that 30% of the pain in the 80s is still quite a lot of pain. It's, is it as simple as you just liquidate your treasury holdings? Is that the trade? 
Um, I don't think so. I, I think you ride through. There is quite a premium there looking at the, you know, the, the spread in terms of the treasuries um, maturing around the debt ceiling. So that's certainly a, a risk factor there. On the banking side, I think that I, I look at it across three different levels. So I think from a depositor standpoint, the crisis has, has basically been solved. And I think that, you know, the Fed, the FDIC and Treasury have been very resolute in that. Um, as it relates to banking equities and, and future profits, that's still an open question mark as to what type of activity they'll have. But the reason that I think that, that the stress today is only 30 percent of the, the SNL crisis is that uh, it hasn't become as widespread. So again, you had hundreds and hundreds of banks failing in, in the 80s, and that was at a period of time when th it was much more pervasive in terms of the economy. You know, here we look at the at the banking issues. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of big dollars involved in the takeovers that have, have gone under and the failures, um, but it's not as pervasive throughout the system. So I don't think it becomes quite as big of a risk factor. What do I do in, in the bond market here? I mean, I look at the two-year treasury. It's almost 4%. That's, that's not a... It beats a kick in the head, I think, given what happened in 2022. How are you guys thinking about the fixed income space these days? Yeah, I think bonds are a pretty interesting opportunity here. Um, you do have, as you mentioned, pretty solid yields. We've had the backdrop of continual improvements in inflation. So 10 months in a row now of CPI improving. I think that continues. You know, if you look at some of the comments in ISM or some of the things you hear in earnings reports, uh, inventory levels are coming down. They're being managed better. That points to future price improvement, points to better inflation, points to you know good outlook for bonds uh, in the near term. And you're right, that 4% that type of level uh, is a pretty good yield compared to where things might sit in the short term uh, with a lot of the stress going on in equities. But then if you get stuck holding it, and there is actually the very first default in history for, for the United States, uh, you lose a lot of money very, very quickly. What then looks good? I I'm trying to think if, if, if there is actually a default, where yeah. do you go? If it gets to that point, I think not very many things look good yeah. and it will be a very challenging That's scenario. when you go to the I ATMs and pull out <laughs> cash. <laughs> I'm, I'm hopeful that it doesn't get there. And I, <laughs> I, I think that we'll find a way to solve the problem before it gets that bad. We were there in 2008. I was at an idea dinner from an investment bank, yeah. seven or eight reasonably smart investors, and you, I've been to a bunch of these, and the, the discussion was how much cash should you have in your house, number one, 10 grand, 25 grand, 50, that, that's what was the discussion. And the second discussion was what's the best safe to have in your house? So people were on Amazon.com at this dinner buying safes that be delivered to them. We're not there. No, we're not there, and I don't think we're anywhere close to there. And I remember that time as well when the fear was over access to your money. And we had, you know, maybe a, a few hours of that fear perking up in the early days of this bank crisis. But that's that's been quashed pretty solidly. And I think deposits are sound here. And the average consumer, the average employee in the in the job market throughout the country knows that. How much did they save? We said twenty five grand in cash. Yep. Hmm. All right. And it's, like it's not easy to do. Thousand dollar bills. I don't know. It, it wasn't easy to do, but I mean, and then you know, people were literally talking about, oh, this I got this safe. This is great. It's it's the best. It's, you know, blah blah blah. Paul anyway. and I have very different friends. Clearly, <laughs> I don't know. Robert Teeter, head of investment policy and strategy group, uh, Silvercrest Asset Management, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight: athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. <laughs> making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY.
Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. If you're in Bangkok, Thailand, and let's say it's Friday, I don't know, 11 at 30 at night, 12, 30 at night, something like that on a Friday, do you dial into Bloomberg Radio? It sounds like maybe you do. No, that would not be me. But this guy, (laughs) this is how hard he works. Dan Ives, Managing Director, Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities. He's overdoing some Asian marketing trip, I guess, trying to scam some votes from institutional investors. I appreciate that. I did that for many years. But Dan, we're going to bring you back down to earth here. We got some movement here on Twitter and Tesla and Linda Yaccarino out of NBC Universal. I guess her going over to Twitter is a really good thing for Twitter and maybe even a good thing for Tesla and its shareholders. What did you make of today's news? Yeah, I mean, this is a home run hire. Uh, Because of of our background on a digital advertising perspective from NBC Universal, it's exactly what Twitter needed. I mean, Musk, you know, ultimately this balancing act, the clock struck midnight. Investors are getting more and more frustrated. And it's a positive for Tesla with now, I mean, even though we see CTO, efforts more and more focused on back on Tesla with wind and now looking to be CF. So sticking with the Twitter piece before we get over to Tesla here, Dan, does this move for Yaccarino work well for the advertisement side of Twitter? Well, I think it's exactly what the doctor ordered because she's extremely well respected in the advertisement community. She understands that world. And I think ultimately... It's been an uphill battle for Twitter, and this is exactly what they needed. And I think it's the right pick and also something that complements Musk in terms of the strategy of Twitter. Mm. Look, there's, it's an uphill battle, but this was what I continue to view as a home run hire. All right, Dan, you're over in, in Asia, presumably meeting with the institutional investors. What are the names they want to talk about? What are the themes that they want to talk about when they get Dan Ives you know, kind of across the conference table? Yeah, look, the big focus has really been this AI arms race. How do you play it? Is, is Microsoft just the winner? Is, where does Google play? Where do other tech players? That, that, I believe, is really one of the biggest themes that we're seeing, along with just big tech. I mean, does it continue to grind higher? And I mean, you've, you know, you can't talk about it. I think tech's up another 10 to 15% rest of the year because what we're seeing in terms of better than feared numbers and fundamentals holding up. Which names are you liking most, if I can ask you to name any in the tech space? Yeah, right now, look, Apple, to me, continues to be our top pick in terms of where I see that in terms of overall iPhone install base and the upgrade opportunity. Microsoft continues to be our core cloud play, you know, just raised price targets at 340 and that. In this AI Game of Thrones battle, they continue to win that. Uh, hands over. And, and I think Palo Alto on cybersecurity continues to be the core name. And then Tesla on disruptive tech. I mean, I think it's one where price cuts were needed. It's obviously struggling through on a margin perspective, but, but I think they're going to navigate and get onto the other side of this. 
Hey, Dan, you know, for me and for a lot of other, I think, investors, the, the deterioration in relations between the U.S. and China is troubling on so many levels. One of the levels is just technology. Are we, when, when you travel around Asia speaking to institutional investors, are they concerned about a, a tech cold war between China and kind of, I don't know, the West broadly defined? Oh, I think it's the biggest thing that comes up, especially here in Asia, in terms of this cold tech war playing out. Has it impacted supply chain? You know, is this ultimately a potential black swan event at one point down the road? And I think ultimately it really is the biggest risk impact. Now, I think Apple has to have navigated that phenomenally. But there's no doubt this is the geopolitical sort of tight wire act that, you know, I believe right now investors are sort of continuing to focus more and more on, although you know, I think fundamentals really dictate the day right now in big tech. We had, we had to Paul's point, we had um, Larry Summers speaking with our David Weston about this, and he said that for businesses, the U.S. gives you a wrist slap and China rolls out the red carpet. Are you sensing that from where you sit? Yeah, look, and I think, I think if you look even at Cook, call it 10% politician, 90% tactician. I mean, China understands right now in terms of this tenuous opportunity that we're seeing. You are trying to see more and more diversification to India, to Vietnam, you know, and across, and as well as in the U.S. with IRA. And that's going to be a tightrope that they play. But I think for right now, you're going to see that as the biggest risk. And I think Ultimately, Apple and Tesla are the ones that continue to sort of walk that tight wire act. And in really what's essentially the coupling between the U.S. and China. Is, is the feeling there in, in Asia, Dan, as you spend a couple of weeks, I'm, I'm assuming you're going to be doing some channel checks with the supply chain and so on. Is there a feeling in Asia that Asia plus India plus maybe some other parts of the world can maybe make up for any supply chain disruption that may even grow from here as it relates to China? Yeah, and Paul, I think the one thing, and we'll be in Taiwan next week as well, that the supply chain issues are really starting to moderate. As well as you combine it with the feel on inventory from a chip perspective, we're really starting to, to get down to a point that we maybe turn here. And that's positive for chips. It's positive for Apple. And then cherry on top of the Sunday is really this AI. I mean, AI we've used an $800 billion market in the next decade. That's really added to, to how tech investors, not just here in Asia, but across the U.S., Europe, and around the world, are trying to play this. It's not just Microsoft that's the winner. It's going to be a Game of Thrones playing out across big tech. Well, within that frame of thinking, were you concerned at all about Apple not really digging into AI much uh, in general, but also specifically in their latest earnings? They were kind of one of the ones that really didn't mention it very much. Yeah, but it's standard Cook and Cupertino. I mean, they play a different game of poker than other big tech players. But I believe at the developer conference next month, as well as into the fall, they're going to talk more and more about their AI strategy. And I think Apple is not going to be on the outside looking in when it comes to AI, just given the DNA of Cupertino. And Tesla, just last before we let you go, uh, hopefully you're 
have a much more fun Friday evening than talking to us. But so for Tesla, is there a sense there? I mean, Elon's invested so much personally and professionally in China. Um, is, is that still a market for Tesla or the incumbent uh, electric vehicle makers there going to really run the game? Yeah, look, I think Tesla has gained share in China, but there's no doubt it's a price war that's playing out versus BYD, NEO, and a lot of the domestic players. But that's going to continue to point of be the core ingredients of their success. 45 to 48% of autos are coming out of China, and I think that's not really going to change. But there's no doubt the price war in China is front and center, and Tesla aggressively is going after that. All right, Dan, thanks very much. You know, we really appreciate the time. Thank we know you're on the other side of the globe. Dan Ives, he's a managing director and senior equity analyst for Wedbush Securities. And when you're a tech analyst like uh, Dan, and particularly a well-known and well-respected tech analyst, you need to be in Asia uh, probably more than the average financial type for a couple of reasons. One, you want to visit institutional investors are there. But two, you want to get a firsthand look at the supply chain uh, in the technology space, hardware, software, and a lot of that particularly on the hardware side, is in Asia. So that's why you'll see um, these tech analysts spend a lot of time physically in Asia doing, you know, channel checks. You know, where how are things in the chip space? How are things in the manufacturing space? And now maybe with China disengaging a little bit more, it may even be a greater issue. And I think that's kind of what tech guys like Dan Ives are doing. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. So when you want to talk about the digital ad space, our go-to person is Mark Douglas. He's a president and CEO of Mountain. Uh, and Mountain is an advertising software company enabling brands to drive measurable conversions, revenue, and site visits. So right down the uh, the fairway for Mark. So Mark, I had two very highly ranked and esteemed auto analysts, or no, I take that back, technology analysts, who said this is a home run deal for Twitter um, and signing uh, this executive from NBC Universal. You're not so sure, are you? You don't, you don't take that route. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to say first, um, Linda, the person at NBC Universal that is rumored to, to be the person that's going to take this role. She's a very, very capable executive. Um, my company, Mount, has a big partnership with NBC. And but the and I think she could definitely do the role. The one thing I'll say, though, is when you combine a kind of big brand advertising executive and you combine that with something that's like a social platform or a search platform, you kind of get Yahoo. Um, <laughs> right. And you're not saying I mean, that in, you're not saying that in a positive sense. I mean, I, I'm saying that Linda can do this job, but at some uh, correct at some point. And when I say you get Yahoo, what you get is a company that kind of tops out in revenue at a few billion. It's a lot of money, but you know, Google and Meta they top out at over a hundred billion. Amazon has built an ad business. I think it's now approaching forty billion, and it's done in a remarkably short period of time. So those companies focus on performance advertising, direct response advertising, and so I think if Linda winds up leading that she's going to need a very, very capable team that probably formerly worked at Meta or formerly worked at Google 
to build out the technology and the platform to have a long tail of advertising. So the thing might say Yahoo, that's a company that had a few thousand advertisers. You look at NBC, they have a few thousand advertisers. Meta and Google have millions. And you can't really scale to the numbers I think well, that people would really expect for Twitter without being able to reach mil you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of potential advertisers. And that chances are it's not gonna come from television executives, it's gonna come from you know, so from from other social social platforms like Meta, um, TikTok, the Google, the executives at those kind of companies. So she will have to add that to her team, um, one way or another. Is kind of my point. So, Mark, what do you see as? Can you give me kind of a specific example of what you see as the biggest experience hole uh, that could potentially impact her time at Twitter? And we should mention that uh, Musk did confirm that she's taking on the CEO role in a tweet. But what do you see as you know a specific situation she's going to encounter that her lack of social media experience might uh, lead to some issues with? Yeah, and by the way, I think that had to be confirmed because NBC's upfront television upfront yeah, starts Monday. Monday. Oh yeah, yeah. So, so, and chances are, um, and she was leading it. So, yes. ch ch so it may not be six weeks now before she starts the role. <laughs> but <laughs> the, Monday. But Monday. I think, yeah. I mean, so the the, the skill set is fundamentally. The, the big dollars in advertising on on digital advertising, they come from the smallest of customers. So the experience, the, the, they come from the companies that, you know, the, the, the direct-to-consumer brand and their retailers, they know, those big dollars ironically don't come from the big advertisers. They don't come from, you know, the, the, the Coke, um, Pepsi or things like that. They come from all of these smaller advertisers with the millions of websites we have and shopping sites and travel sites and things like that, that, that incrementally spend just really significant amounts of money. And that really insulates you from economic downturns. You notice that even in the worst of economic times, Meta actually had an up quarter um, because they're very insulated from like any uh, small number, like 100 CMOs controlling a budget. So she's gonna need people with that experience. How do you build out a performance marketing platform for Twitter that can attract all of these smaller advertisers who are ultimately who we're gonna build our business around and build it to, 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 to much, much larger scale. And you see like, Amazon did a fantastic job of that. I mean, how the, 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 there aren't a lot of large advertisers on Amazon's advertising platform. It's all these small sellers that are the majority of that revenue. And that's what those, that skill set to do that is, I think, the skill set she's going to need to add to her team. I don't think she classically has that on her resume. So, Mark, every company in every industry over the last several quarters in her conference call have mentioned. AI, and I think the kids re are referring to artificial intelligence. I'm not sure about that, but um, so how does that factor into what is a multi-gajillion-dollar business, which is the advertising business, uh, both linear, you know, TV, radio, all that kind of stuff, as well as the big growth engine, which is digital advertising? Yeah. So what what Google and Meta are so good at is finding the right consumer for your brand. I mean, that's ultimately. I always say. 
no advertising, advertising um, purchases, they don't actually want to buy ads. They want to buy traffic. They want to buy the consumers that are aligned with the product that they're selling. And Google obviously is incredibly, I mean, it's, it's, it's the most efficient marketing engine ever because you literally tell them what you're interested in buying and then they go here and then they take you right to it. And and so and and so that's why they're so large. And Meta doesn't have that kind of input, but they got very very good at it. Obviously, to build their business over a hundred billion dollars, and that is really hard for small advertisers. And what what those companies are really good at, I think now um, the the where AI is going to play a role is one bringing more efficiency into the advertising ecosystem, and two just getting really 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 incredibly good and making that connection. Who are the consumers that are very open to hearing your message and, and hopefully potentially want to buy your product? And I think there's still a lot of room to go in that type of technology. And I think we are at a point where a lot of that tech is going to be AI-oriented technology to do it. I also want to ask about Disney while we have you. Uh, sure. Tough week for them. They owe Comcast a lot of money for the Hulu situation. What do you think is the likelihood of Comcast potentially just going all in and purchasing Hulu? Yeah, I think um, the, the conversations on that were very active. Um, just you know, knowing people at Comcast and Disney. But I think Disney definitively, they said we're doing a bundle. And they did. I mean, they have said we're go they want to double down on on owning Hulu and making it a part of a major bundle with Disney Plus and some of the other properties. So um, I know Comcast is going to then try to extract as much money as they possibly can mm -hmm. from the portion of Hulu that they own. But I think that was a big question mark. And I think this week that that question mark was removed that that Disney wants to own Hulu and te and and they and, and that's going to happen. But the details on the money they owe Comcast related to Hulu are still to be worked out. I also think, just to add one more point, I mean, Hulu as a, I'm sorry, Disney as a stock is, they have so much, they have so many ways to save money and make Wall Street happy and things like that. There's no doubt it's going to be pretty easy for Disney to be a good stock to own. I think the real question marks in their business are the the brand is associated with magic, and the and if the brand loses that magical luster, the question is: Do you do you, you want to own the stock short term, but do consumers want to own the product long term? Right. So I think all the question marks around Disney have to do with. You know, the price points for Disneyland are yeah. literally insane. <laughs> and if yep. you remove magic as part of the value proposition, is anyone, are people still going to yep. want to pay that? Yep. It's becoming a huge question mark. All right, Mark, thanks very much. We always appreciate getting a couple minutes of your time. We can talk to you anything on the media, technology space. Mark Douglas, president and CEO of Mountain, kind of getting the latest on what's going on at Twitter with Elon Musk and Linda Yaccarino leaving NBC Universal, going over some big changes in the ad space. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. All right, kids. ESG, environmental, sustainability, and governance, ESG. I'm all down with that. I learned this before you <laughs> sure. guys even knew what it was. You're like, I know. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I was over in uh, meeting investors in Paris, I don't know, 
10, 11, 12 years ago. And they say, I was talking pitching Disney or something like that. So how are they on ESG? I'm like, what? What is ESG? <laughs> Why are you all Mickey Mouse? asking me yeah, this? Yeah, I mean, it's Mickey Mouse. I mean, I don't even know what ESG is, but now I know. Okay, it's big. Uh, a lot of money being allocated to research, uh, to, to funds that, fo- that focus on ESG and incorporate that into their investment uh, process. Um, it's a global situation, a global issue. That's why Bloomberg Intelligence has 20 analysts assigned to all aspects 20, of yeah. ESG research. Shaheen Contractor, ESG research analyst. She's our fave. She's a Bloomberg Intelligence. All right. Some stuff going on here. You have to explain what Article 9 is and why do I care about it or why do ESG investors care about it? So both Article 9 funds are a European designation. Basically, they represent the most sustainable, I guess, for the lack of better words. Okay. What happened is a lot of them got downgraded uh, maybe towards Q4 of last year because uh, basically the regulators went and said, you know, sustainable investing criteria are very specific and have to be 100% of the funds. Everybody, you know, uproared and then reclassified down and now they've loosened the criteria. So we'll see what happens. So what does that mean for ESG investing and people who are, you know, like my friends who are like, I kind of want to invest in ESG You have friends who want to invest in ESG. They do, but they do it through like Elevest or something. Like, we don't know what we're doing, you know? So so what does this mean for them? My friends are rolling over two-month T-bills. That's because your friends are smart. I don't know. (laughs) So I don't think it really means much. I mean, all it means is it's going from a more ESG category to a less ESG category, it's just interchanging okay. between the two. Nothing about the holdings are changing. I think what's really interesting this year is that we saw a lot of fund liquidations, mm-hmm. a lot of them. So that's really picked up in the US. And I feel like that's going to be exasperated a little bit by the political backlash. So now I feel like people have this bleak view of future asset gathering capabilities. So while I don't think you know assets decreased because of the political backlash, I think it's going to exasperate the slowdown, cause more liquidations, all that fun stuff. So the ESG investing to me, it seems to have, in terms of popularity, intensity, capital, mm-hmm peaked and now is on a decline in the U.S. That's just my, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but boy, not in Europe. So why is Europe different from the U.S. or why is the U.S. different from Europe? I think the U.S. has gotten, I guess, caught a little bit in the political backlash. First of all, ESG was, you know, very much a big institutional thing. So it was a few big institutions putting large chunks of money into into ESG funds and never really caught on beyond that. In Europe, it, it sort of, has always continued because there's favorable regulations. So in the U.S. now what's happened is because of this political backlash, I feel like that investor base that was institutional is going to not expand or it's going to be restricted from expanding. So it's going to continue to cause a slowdown, whereas Europe does not have that problem, I guess. So does that reduce the incentive for companies to pursue ESG policies if they're not going to get support from their shareholders and creditors and things like that? I think more than that, regulators, right? The regulators are going to push down on the investors like what's happening in Florida from, you know, they're going to restrict them from doing ESG analysis or launching green bonds, I think, something like that. So I think the regulators are going to cause more of that shift. And what about the moves from the Biden administration, like the IRA? Is that a sufficient hedge against some of that? So that's very clean tech and clean energy focused. I kind of separate ESG and clean energy, right? Like that's clean energy is a theme. It's a 
it's more of like a very small subset yes she is very like broad risks and opportunities values based things like that so while that you know supported clean energy and will support it in the long term yes she's different all right so for esg on one side i've got some conservative politicians uh on the other side i've got people like Larry Fink at BlackRock, who's all in ESG, right? And he's got a couple of shekels under management. I mean, who wins this battle, do you think? Oh, I don't know. No? <laughs> we, 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 no idea, no idea. So Hopefully what are we hearing from, like, short-lived. But how about a state like California? They're still all in yeah. from a pension fund perspective. Yeah. Like, we get, we'll, you know, we'll support companies and investment strategies that incorporate ESG? Yeah, so you have a very big divide. Like you have on one hand, I feel like within the same week, the Chicago Pension Fund decided to drop fossil fuels and the same week Vanguard exit, exited the Net Zero Asset Alliance. They, we said Vanguard exited the? The Net Zero Asset Managers Alliance. So okay, that so that's was, bad for ESG. Yeah. Okay. And at the same time, Chicago went and decided to exclude fossil fuels. So you're seeing a very two-sided sort of America, or for lack of better terms. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what does this look like as we head into the rest of the year after all of, like, the banking turmoil, the yeah. maybe debt ceiling issue? What's next? So I think for U.S., for ESG, it's a, it's a combination of a continued slowdown because, like I said, we had a very concentrated investor base. What we needed to see is that widen. Mm-hmm. Will this stop the widening? Probably. We might see cyclicality again, you know, large investors put large chunks of money so suddenly like a one up and then suddenly a one down so either cyclicality or a little bit of a slowdown at least in the u.s and it's funny because i spoke to tim craighead who who part of our management team running bloomberg intelligence in london and he was just traveling through the nordic countries wow that's all they talk about yeah mm-hmm. that's I mean, all they've ever talked that, about that's I all mean, they talk about time. i mean you go to norges bank which is you know one of the biggest sovereign wealth funds in the world yeah. i mean if you're not super green they're not investing in you so Paul you asked me what was different about Europe that's also another thing that's really different about Europe right your asset owners throw it down your throat (laughs) the US doesn't do that so much and the asset owners I don't feel like they control so much of the market than the European asset owners Hmm. it's funny because how did Norway make all their money oil Oil. (laughs) right well that's what's interesting too we had a guest on the business week show recently who had a very contrarian esg view he basically said that you could argue that some of the oil companies are an esg investment because someday they're gonna switch to clean energy that's completely true so i wouldn't say energy or oil is bad and you know something like tech is good I think it's all relative to the business of the company and what mm-hmm. they're doing. Like, not just bank excluded oil companies from the entire portfolio, not due to ESG reasons. They wanted to diversify their pension fund because their economy is oil <laughs> dependent. There you go. So there are very different reasons for doing different things. Yeah. And all right. But Bloomberg Intelligence has allocated a lot of resources to all things uh, ESG uh, and believe that's a big, big future here. So Shaheen Contractor, thanks so much for joining us. Shaheen Contractor, she is the ESG Research Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, and she joins us live in a Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on a Friday, I will note. So like double gold star for Shaheen. <laughs> uh, no mailing in, no work from home for Shaheen. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. 